this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode after nearly 20 years luis inacio lula da silva has been re-elected as brazil's president lula who was earlier president from 2003 to 2010 defeated his right-wing rival Jair Bolsonaro by a narrow margin but it was enough to send Lula's supporters into the streets of Brazil in celebration the president elect who served 580 days in jail before being acquitted of corruption charges has promised to reunite a bitterly divided country interestingly bolsonaro is yet to concede defeat a whole procession of world leaders ranging from Russia's Vladimir Putin to America's Joe Biden have congratulated the 77-year-old Lula who is credited with pulling millions of people out of poverty during his earlier stints as president so what does lula's election mean for brazil and can the new president actually unite a divided nation something that has become a feature of many modern democracies to discuss these issues I am joined by Professor Varun Sahani, who teaches international politics at Jawaharlal Nehru University. Welcome to the In Focus podcast, Varun. Uh, thanks so much, Amit. Great to be here with you. So, first thoughts on the Brazilian election. What do you make of it, Varun? Well, even after the first round of, uh, uh, you know, it was it was clear the first round of polling that uh, this was going to be close, uh, and I think the the runoff has pretty much confirmed that. Brazil is uh, is really uh, truly in that sense a divided society today no question about that the the divide also sort of uh, has a, has a bit of a regional basis so so lula had a strong showing in the northeast of the country he had a strong showing uh, in sao paulo for example uh, but brasilia rio etc went with the Bolsonaro and uh, you know and and certainly uh, it's it's quite clear that uh, you know the divisions that Lula is now proposing to bridge and heal uh, are not going to get uh, you know bridged and healed uh, you know all that all that easily because they they're quite formidable divides uh, uh, and you know so I think I think we are going to have to wait and sort of see how this all shakes out So there's a tradition in Brazil that the, you know the loser in a sense concedes defeat to the winner but that hasn't happened and instead we see uh, you know lots of lorry drivers who are loyal to the uh, current president you know they've taken to the streets and actually blocked roads across the country so what do you make of this is this say does this uh, uh, you know send out a bad signal or do you think uh, you know these are just hiccups and uh, uh, the mr bolsonaro will come around let's let's sort of look at the immediate kind of situation right now you know it's it's not it's not yet clear that sort of this uh, you know this protest is going to spread to other sectors as well we'll have to wait and see the judicial system is already kicked into action and is sort of you know threatening very heavy fines for those who sort of block the major kind of arterial roadways of brazil now uh, when it comes to sort of the you know Bolsonaro is 67 he's 10 years younger than Lula Lula himself is indicates that you know comebacks are possible you know and uh, it's happened before you know Getulia Vargas was one of the 
iconic kind of political figures in Brazil. Uh, you know, uh, he he sort of uh, uh, from 1934 to 1945, he was in power, then came back in 1951 before he committed suicide in 54. So, you know, Lula's comeback is remarkable, but it's it's not unknown in the context of Brazilian history over the last sort of, you know, 80 or 100 years. And so Bolsonaro probably would have that calculation in mind as well. Let's not forget that sort of his, his elder son, Flavio, is a senator, presumably also with uh, with now a very, very, very clear kind of uh, political ambitions. Uh, so, you know, there, there are prob- in other words, there are certain incentives out there for, uh, you know, Bolsonaro eventually conceding. Uh, but, but he hasn't yet. You're absolutely right about that. So, and what do you make of, you know, Lula's initial comments, you know, after his victory that, you know, I'm going to be the president of all 215 million Brazilians and, you know, I'm going to unite the country, you know, especially since the margin of victory is so narrow, you know, 50.9 percentage points to 49.1. I mean, that's a really narrow victory. Absolutely. That's, that's it. And, uh, but but it's very interesting when you look at the figures to see how some how those how that overall percentage hides the fact, for example, that Bolsonaro probably didn't get more than say eighteen percent of the female vote or something close to that. So it's clear that sort of you know his his support base uh, is is male uh, is is sort of uh, you know in some ways racially sort of determined. But also you know also sort of the more prosperous parts of the country have tended to. To vote for him, so uh, so you know that 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 kind of fifty percent divide also sort of in some ways is signaling to some of the core cleavages uh, in Brazilian society today. Uh, now the thing about uh, you know about Latin America or indeed the Western Hemisphere as a whole is that of course these are all distinct political communities. Each each country, uh, you know, in that sense has its own political history, its trajectory, and so on. But of course, ideas travel across uh, across political borders. Uh, surely they do. And so, you know, uh, it's not surprising, given the affinity between Bolsonaro and, and Trump in the United States, that to some extent, uh, there's a certain certain amount of sort of mimicry almost going on here. Now, But that mimicry can also work both ways, because, you know, Trump not having conceded ultimately didn't really change the course of events in the United States, uh, you know, as we all know. And uh, not just that, but, but you know, even the insurrection later on, the, you know, uh, on the U.S. Capitol, ultimately, dramatic though it was, did not fundamentally change uh, the, the process in terms of transition to power. So, so you know, these, these could still be very much early reactions, uh, you know, and, and it's a pretty long transition process. I mean, the changeover doesn't take place till the Till, till the new year. So, you know, uh, things may sort of ultimately uh, dampen down. And what's your sense, you know, uh, in both houses of the legislature, uh, Bolsonaro's party is very influential, it's possibly the largest party, uh, you know, in both houses. And um, Lula, uh, you know, especially with all the economic challenges he faces, uh, he's probably going to need all his political skills to maneuver the country in a direction that he's promised. Absolutely. Although out here, I'll, I'll sort of, you know, add a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a factor that is important for us to understand when we are analyzing Brazilian politics, which is that the, uh, you know, Brazil doesn't really have, uh, you know, robust political parties, you know, and the, the party system 
actually sees sees a great deal of fracturing when it comes to political parties. In fact, Lula's party, the Workers' Party, Pete, is in fact one one of the exceptions to this rule in that it has tended to be organizationally quite cohesive, and it also obviously has you know has had a sort of uh, a support base, uh, you know, a well-defined support base, and uh, has a certain degree of uh, ideological coherence. That that cannot be said, in fact, of, of all political parties. Uh, Bolsonaro's own uh, career shows him having switched uh, parties about five times, uh, including sort of a period when he was an independent. Uh, you know, as as president of Brazil, he didn't have a party. So, you know, uh, you're, you're absolutely right in your observation that... Uh, that you know, in in a presidential uh, form uh, form of government, you obviously need to, to you know the, the executive has to work with the legislature, and if, it, if the legislature is is composed of, of very significant kind of opposition forces, that makes the task of government much more difficult. And Lula is going to face that challenge, but uh, we may find that you know uh, there is there is going to be there's going to be scope there uh, for. For playing the political game, and then Lula's shown himself in the past to be, you know, a past master at this. So, so your observation is correct, but I mean, you know, uh, uh, do remember that parties uh, in Brazil are not cohesive in the way, say, parties in the United States are. Uh, but even in the United States, we've seen the extent to which now, you know, party cohesion has collapsed. So, uh, as you sort of remarked in your introduction, I mean, I think all democracies uh, now are facing a bunch of pressures, uh, you know, some of which really, you know, flow out of technology and so on. And what's your sense? I mean, you know, we saw Lula actually, uh, you know, involving as his running mate, uh, someone who had contested against him earlier. So is that a signal that he has uh, retained the ability to build alliances or, or what does it sort of suggest to you? Yeah, I think there was uh, there was a coalescing, you know, of the left and liberal forces in Brazil. I mean, you know, Bolsonaro was seen by many of them as being extremely disagree- disagreeable, not just in terms of ideology, but, uh, you know, even, even otherwise, uh, you know, uh, in terms of personality almost, you know. And, uh, and so, you know, Lula's victory is not entirely only Lula's and that of, say, the, uh, you know, the Workers' Party, uh, Fernando Enrique Cardozo, you know, the the former president, uh, you know, world-renowned sociologist of the of the Social Democrats, sort of, you know, was in his corner uh, and so on. So, so there has been an attempt, therefore, to some extent overcome, you know, the the fractured nature of of Brazilian politics. But there has been a similar kind of coalescing of forces, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the right in Brazil as well, which ultimately has led to this kind of uh, a result of you know fifty point nine versus uh, for, you know forty nine point one. It's going to be very interesting to see the extent to which sort of you know uh, ultimately in government uh, you know Lula is able to play the game and whether that kind of uh, cohesion you know uh, is going to actually you know last out you know once once sort of you know concrete uh, policies are at stake and so on. So what are uh, you know five of the biggest economies of Latin America, Brazil. Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, and Chile have now left-wing governments or left-leaning governments, if I can call them that. What does this signal? I mean, you know, when the rest of the world uh, seems to be, you know, in the grip of, uh, you know, quite hardline governments in a sense. I mean, uh, Latin America seems to be bucking this trend. Yes, although, you know, as someone who 
uh, you know, there is this kind of tendency to sort of see these waves in Latin America, you know, that there's a left-wing wave and then there's a right-wing wave. And, you know, uh, there were obviously famously the, you know, the wave of military dictatorships, uh, particularly in the, you know, in the countries of South America, uh, you know, in earlier decades. I would be a bit hesitant to see, uh, you know, to read uh, very major kind of, you know, uh, mega meanings uh, in, into this. Uh, you know, I think I think in each case you could uh, you could probably explain uh, you know why there were certain electoral victories based on uh, politics much closer to the ground. You know, uh, so so my my sense is that that overall picture that you're painting uh, is not inaccurate, but I think to read too much of meaning into it uh, is probably something we should uh, be a bit cautious about. In a sense, uh, the definition of left also seems to be changing. I mean, I think it's it has really evolved, say, over the last 25, 30 years. So I wonder what this actually means in a sense. Uh, Amit, you, you just, you've just made, uh, you know, a, a truly important observation. I, and I think this is something that, you know, uh, that's one of the things we need to actually pick up uh, from Latin America. Is that is that how some of these ideological meanings itself have, have, have been transmuted? So, you know, in the... In the old sense, you know, the the left were always the insurgents, and you know, the, the right were really the establishment. So, you know, the establishment uh, coming to power was was never a remarkable thing. You know, I mean, it was it was all about you know you could invoke tradition and you know all, all the rest of it. Uh, and you know, and whenever whenever sort of forces of the left came to power, you could always sort of paint it in you know entirely kind of revolutionary terms and so on. But I, I think that kind of binary has shifted, and I mean. We need to ask to what extent, in some ways, you know, the left has become the establishment, and that this may, in fact, be the new trend. That in many cases, it's the right that is now, you know, the the insurgents, as it were, you know, uh, those who are storming the citadels of power. Uh, so, 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 you know, uh, one one aspect of it is, of course, you know, the, the point that uh, you know, with new issue areas coming into play, like the environment, for example, uh, you know, and and certain. And certain sort of, you know, uh, uh, issues that earlier were issues of ideological contestation now no longer being issues of ideological contestation, uh, such as, for example, you know, uh, definitions of family and so on. Uh, there, there has been a social evolution on, on those grounds. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I, think, I think some of that, you know, that, that old sense of right and left and, and you know, also, also has, has changed very fundamentally. Which is, in fact, one of the reasons, uh, you know, just to go back to my last response to you, that I'm, I'm a little hesitant to therefore, therefore draw, you know, really kind of mega, you know, meanings out of these obviously important sort of events. One of the points that, Varun, I want to pick up, uh, you know, you didn't refer to it briefly, uh, you know, about democracies and division. So we see it in the United States. We've seen it in Brazil. We see it in India also. It's not as if we haven't had political divides in these democracies earlier. But it somehow seems that, uh, you know, the camps are really sharply divided and they see uh, their, you know, political contest as a huge battle. Uh, there are ideological battle lines, of course, drawn. So, What is your sense? I mean, is this a global phenomena? I mean, is this something that is going to be a feature of our democracies? Because it seems to be the case in India as well. Yeah, so so you know, if you if you remember your early days in journalism, you'd know that yes, you know the various say in the Indian context, the various newspapers, you know, they were identified in you know in in, in broad ways as as having 
you know, representing certain ideological tendencies. And yet, you know, if you, you know, those tendencies were often, uh, you know, manifested really only in the op-ed page, you know, I mean, the coverage of, of most of the news was not really that slanted, you know, in the sense that you could, you could have picked up any of the major, major newspapers and, you know, you know and found satisfaction in that sense. Now, that's what's changed. And it, it, it's really all about, it's all about these new technologies of, uh, uh, of, of, of how, how people gain information uh, and the sense of what's happening in the world around them. With the new media, uh, you know, we, we are all in our echo chambers. Uh, you know, it, it's an act of active will to break out of your echo chamber uh, because, you know, the, the technologies itself will, will keep sort of funneling, you know, news and opinions of a particular tendency to you. Uh, and unless you actively sort of contest and combat that, and that's a great deal of effort for most people. I mean, it's different for, for, for people who do it professionally, you know, uh, you know, journalists and political scientists, but, but for mostly, you know, I mean, it, it's, you, you essentially begin to believe that, you know, uh, obviously, you know, the information you're getting is accurate and therefore everything else is false news. And therefore, you know, uh, it, it's very difficult, to, you know, in, in the case of countries that have uh, competitive and, uh, you know, politics and, you know, representational politics, uh, you know, in other words, democracies, it's extremely difficult to figure out how you're going to get over this core uh, technological challenge. Uh, and by the way, it doesn't always necessarily mean that uh, the results would sort of pan out in this almost 50-50 kind of divide that we've seen in Brazil, which is clearly remarkable, uh, you know, but uh, but you would find a congealing of those percentages, you know, and, and there'll be fewer, fewer you know, um, undecided in, in, in sort of elections, you know, people would be made up their minds well before polling day. So, so that I think is, is, is what we can look forward to. So this is a phenomena you think that's going to persist because it's many other countries as well. I didn't mention Turkey, another example. So your sense is that, uh, you know, people in these countries have to deal with these divisions. And as you said, make an, try and make an effort to come out of their echo chambers. Yeah, and, and that's where and that's where sort of, you know, uh, ultimately, uh, I think culture is going to become so important because, you know, it's going to be by by the creation of cultural artifacts in the in the creative arts, in the uh, you know, in the performing arts, the visual arts, etc., you know, where in fact, you know, the uh, an attempt is going to have to be made in the literary arts, you know, to to sort of you know get beyond uh, these understandings and sort of uh, you know uh, actually show that you know there's that in other words, the ability to put yourself in the other guy's shoes, you know, uh, that's a, a core. Uh, requirement you know for uh, for any kind of democratic politics uh, you know so so it's never a battle to the death if you are in democratic politics uh, and you know and that's the reason you concede defeat uh, and you start preparing for the next round and you start you say okay i was in government now i'm going to be in the opposition and uh, you know i'm going to i'm going to keep uh, you know pushing my my preferences my policies and uh, you know my notion of the social good common good and so on so I mean, you know, that's that's my sense. But here I'm, you know, I mean, your your views are as good as mine on this. But that's my sense of it. Varun Sahani, Professor of International Politics at Jawaharlal Nehru University. Thank you so much for sharing your views with the In Focus podcast. Thank you, Amit. This was great. In Focus will be back soon 
with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.